Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Awesome. Well, uh, today I'm very happy to be joined by uh, Stanley Boots of Silta Finance and excited to dig in a little, Stanley. I was just um, preparing a little bit for a call and, and having a look through Silta's white paper. And, um, and of course, you and I were just chatting about the recent, uh, before we hit record, some of the recent um, turbulence and turmoil in the crypto markets. Sure. Um, so uh, that, that kind of puts a little bit of a timestamp. I'm not sure when we'll get this uh podcast out it usually lags a couple of weeks but just to kind of time stamp it <laughs> at least emotionally for the audience sure. so um stanley do you want to just give a quick introduction um to yourself you know we were just starting to chat about your background and coming from ecology and so maybe just you know kind of like um weaving the thread of your life and how it's come to the conviction that you have around web3 and maybe give us a little bit of color at the end there about what you know what unique issues that silta is addressing and then we can just kind of go from there we'll just can't have a good free flow conversation sure um yeah you never want to get me started on my life story because it's been fun i've been enjoying it the whole whole way through um, so I'm I'm uh, a fellow from Indiana. Uh, when I was 21, I was um, working on a summer job during college. I was studying ecology at the time, and and uh, I started thinking, hey, I'm I'm working this job in the middle of the night, and a lot of folks are just doing this their whole lives. What would I rather do? And I said, well, I'd like to go to Japan. And then the next question is, well, why not? So I did. And um, I went to Japan, studied martial arts for a couple of years, and then from there came back, um, worked on my undergrad biology degree, and took my first job at the Bronx Zoo in New York as an environmental educator and wildlife conservationist, and um, was doing that, loving the work. Um, one of the jobs I got to do, or one of the more interesting pieces of work was to go into um, inner city schools. Uh, that were adequately or inadequately funded or woefully funded for sciences and teach teachers how to teach science, how to get kids excited by something that I thought, you know, every kid has an innate interest in science. Kids love that stuff. But the way we teach science is a big turnoff, I, I, I think. And so um, I really, you know, when I was in my early 20s, just loved that career. But um, then I turned, made a wrong tur turn at Albuquerque and ended up accidentally becoming a lawyer. And uh, the way that happened was I was looking for um, what degree was actually going to be most useful for me to run an environmental organization. I had, I had very, at that time in my early 20s, a lot of thoughts on um, how we could put together a, um, an environmental program that brought people very close to the land, but always focused on energetics. For example, the amount of energy that we need to cook a bowl of rice, for example. And where does that come from? And within, if you're in an environment and your energy sources are limited, how would you use those local environmental, um, environmental services? And that, starting with a very simple idea of making a fire and trying to cook something, is a great way for you to get a big picture 
of what an entire ecosystem is doing and, and the services that it gives back to us, um, back to humanity. So um, skipping ahead, I went from there. Um, I went back to Japan as a lawyer. I built a rice farm. I, I bought, a, at the time, a 160-year-old Japanese farm in the hills and began living there and trying to live as sustainably as possible. Um, I grew four kinds of rice. I raised ducks and commuted to um, Tokyo five days a week on a, not a bullet train, but a pretty fast train. So I was really loving my life. Um, and then um, with the skill set I was doing at the time, um, working in renewable energy and also conventional energy and project financing, um, somehow my personal interest in science led me during law school to start looking at, oh, well, if we're dealing, if we're building energy systems, what, what can I as an individual do? So, you know, that, that that's just what happened during law school. And, and I decided, okay, I'll try being a lawyer. And then it led me down a whole new pathway. I did it. Um, I ended up in Vietnam on a project that then led me to go deeper and deeper into issues in Southeast Asia. And then um, my um, co-founder of Silta and I, back in 2014, we were working on infrastructure projects together. And we also were looking for work that we called meaningful. Like, what could we do that actually is going to make a greater impact on the, on, on the planet? And we formed a firm together. So Ben and I um, formed a company called Frontier. And what we did is we tried to take only the outside-of-the-box projects and immediately, we scored a fisheries project in Philippines. Um, the mandate was help us develop a public-private partnership, make it achieve social uh, impact and environmental impact, increase fish populations, and make a small rate of return. That was the mandate. And for two years, Ben and I worked deeply on that, and we came up with a new business model. Um, that became a part of a blueprint that was adopted by USAID and other organizations, and they're rolling it out now. What we found is it's the data of the fish being landed. And if the data of the fish being landed could be adequately tracked, then the individual fishers enjoy a better life. They can get more money for their harvest, lose less harvest, and it just went from there. That then led Ben down um, the whole data management side, and he went into Web3, and then came back to me a couple years ago and said, hey, Stanley, I got this great idea for a Web3 project where we could connect the liquidity of decentralized finance markets with impact projects, and here's how it would work. And then he presented it, and then now, now that's what I do. Whew, that was a lot, wasn't it? <laughs> awesome. Well, that's that's great to just get a sense of things. And um, as you were chatting, I was just looking through some of the other CELTA team members and noticed I know quite a few of your colleagues, which is kind of cool. Um, the streamer, it seems like the streamer team is very heavily, uh, heavily involved. Sure. Streamer, streamer came in with seed funding. Um, ben was with Streamer. He was he set up a subsidiary of Streamer. And then that evolved into Silta. He, he cool. came up with the idea and the co-founders all joined. And then he invited me in as well. Awesome. Yeah, really interesting. So um, 
tell me a little bit about um, Silta. What are you all working on? Like, what is, and, and maybe even framing it within the recent sort of FTX collapse, and what is Silta working on that's going to bring attributes of stability or um, higher quality collateral into decentralized finance? And 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 maybe like as you're talking about that, why is that? important for um what we might broadly refer to the sort of as the regen mission you know what's sure yeah, go ahead. sure um okay uh it, it started with ben having a cup of coffee on the train um where he was just reflecting on ave protocol and other protocols and the amount of liquidity that they had in their protocols and he thought to himself hey you know, small-scale PPPs or small-scale impact projects have always struggled to get access to financing. And just imagine what X billion of dollar, billions of dollars of liquidity could do if it were shaped to, to serve smaller-sized projects. And that's where Silta began with that thought. Silta is finished for bridge. So the original idea is how could we bridge real-world assets small-scale environmental infrastructure-type projects with DeFi liquidity. Now, what we do, I, I, I'd say, is pretty straightforward. When DeFi investors are looking at a project, what are they actually investing into? Um, many of them invest on a protocol, and they get the name of the project, they get a few details about the project, and then they invest without having much underlying data. What Silta does is we, we examine the project and we apply a form of due diligence, actually quite deep due diligence. Um, we're looking at right now over 280 data points on any one project. And that due diligence takes the form of a scoring and it's a multivariate scoring. So we're going to be scoring various kinds of risks and also the impact of the project. And um, we we break the risks and the impact into the natural risks based on the structure of a project. So was the project structured in a way that would naturally lend itself to generating the outcomes it said it will out, it will deliver? And number two, um, will it be able to function smoothly enough to be able to service any loans that are applied to it? We also look at the construction phase and then the operation phase risks. All of these elements that we're analyzing really come from our background in doing large-scale infrastructure investments and, and the project financing of infrastructure. And so we took the typical due diligence that we would do at a very large scale, we started streamlining it and then looking at a way that it can be applied to projects from, let's say, we're, we're currently looking at a project that needs $70,000 of, of loan capital up to projects that might need $50 million. And the area that's most important to us right now are those projects which have a stated impact goal that can be measured. Now, what do I mean by impact? I, we, we're talking about projects, and I think our, our bias is mostly to projects that are um, addressing climate change. And the easiest projects for us to launch on right now are solar, various forms of solar power projects. 
So we've got one project. I, I'm off to Philippines next week to eyeball a, a bundled group of mini grids, 16 mini grids in the Philippines. And that 16 mini, um, mini grids will provide power to over 40,000 people, hundreds of small businesses. And it's that kind of project that if you took it to a traditional bank, the project may find it's difficult to to get investment because the overall structure of the project is something that, well, first of all, the, the size of it is a little bit small for a big project financing, which requires a couple million dollars of legal fees. That's the first barrier. Um, and then the other barriers are, well, does the project have government guarantees? Does it have all these different risk mitigation factors that um, the lenders that I've always worked with, we examine the project, we, we go very deep and very quickly, and we've developed a series of analyses that look at various components of the project, and then we deliver a score. With that score, we now, with the score, which will be probably most likely represented as an NFT. We've been saying from the very beginning, we would like to use an NFT and particularly a dynamic NFT that can apply and, and, and deliver a score, which is then authenticated. And then that NFT unlocks a, um, a more in-depth due diligence report so that when the borrower is now going to market, the borrower has this NFT asset that has been representing a score and they've got a due diligence report and now they're actually investment ready lenders can then examine this and then decide whether or not that this project um, meets the lending mandate and also the the risk level that the lender is willing to take so basically i mean the kind of project i've had to do in the past we might have six sets of advisors three on each side, examining one project. And that that advisory team is just not available for small-scale infrastructure projects and small-scale environmental services projects. So we're trying to streamline it. And then we also, so part one is due diligence. Part two is setting up this marketplace. And the marketplace is we're also evaluating the lending protocols, the DeFi protocols, inviting them in, and then the DeFi protocols stake and they connect to the individual project. And then it's for them to move forward with the with the loan services. So taking a step back, is there anything what from your perspective, what is most attractive or essential to Silta to be choosing to build in Web3? Is it access to the DeFi markets um, as a sort of primary customer, as opposed to centralized finance, or is it something that is uniquely possible around sort of efficiency and lowering due diligence costs that the infrastructure unlocks, um, or something else or kind of a combination of those like what is it that like because obviously there's a higher degree of risk and technical complexity there's a number of trade-offs in, de in deploying into web3 so yes. what are the primary 
sort of uh, drivers for choosing that route for Silta? Okay, so basically, why Web3, right? When we got started, the interesting thing is when we got started, we always visualized this as a Web3 project because we felt that the liquidity within the DeFi markets was such that a right tool to connect a real-world, small-scale impact project if we could build the right tool, we could provide that access to finance and an entirely new set of financing available for those projects that just get stuck by traditional finance. Now, I don't want to get on a soapbox and, and really go off much about traditional finance or go off about multilaterals, but you see a lot of greenwashing out there, to be perfectly honest. You see so many banks and multilaterals making statements of going to change the world, but the barriers to borrowing, the barriers to getting access to financing are pretty high. And so there, that was the first, I would say, the very first angle that we were looking at it from. Then also we take a look at who our Web3 investors are. They, The Web3 investors are um, generally a bit younger demographic who have some pretty shared values with us. These um, Web3 aficionados or enthusiasts want to see a world where they can be change agents individually. They can be participants. So that was that ethos of, of being a participant and being rewarded for your participation was what really attracted me into Web3. And then, of course, now as you've been talking with Ben and I, and and we're getting closer to your region network to members, we're seeing that there's an even more interesting subset of um, Web3 participants where um, people are truly trying to be change agents, and they're actually looking at completely different models for economy. So I think one of the issues that um, when we were at the when we were at the workshop hosted by Sidewalk. Um, a few weeks ago with you, we, you and other members were talking about the idea of, you know, what what should be backing fiat currency? Should it be gold or should we look at environmental services to underlie that? And I think it's that imaginative thinking which really um, drives us toward uh, Web3 and also toward the region network, knowing that, look, if we if we're going to meet the goals of, of trying to reduce a thousand billion tons, a thousand gigatons of carbon by 2100, we're going to have to completely break away from traditional, we're not, not completely break away. I'd say we're going to have to add on top of traditional structures that have not been fast enough in, in acting. So web three using technology, technology, um, can be used to streamline due diligences. It can be used to make it more uniform. We can decentralize elements of the due diligence process as with time. We'll make it more and more decentralized such that a um, our goal is to see a project apply for financing and have its due diligence achieved less than two weeks scoring. And then market players will come and say whether or not they want to support this. And they can support it on an, an entire story of the project, not just a, 
a two or three line description. They can they can look at all the factors. So our you know our currently we have I believe eleven eleven score factors and uh, within the SILTA scoring on top of a pretty unique approach to impact. And we're still reworking the impact scoring. Um, last thing I want to say about the impact scoring is for us, we're not doing a bank scoring and then add on a nice little feel-good factor. Oh, is it impact? Yes or no? Or does it have ESG components? What we're looking at is uh, being able to offer up a measurement of, of impact where the the borrower, the project owner, has identified their goals, and we will be able to help track over time. And that's the third component of, of SILTA is first one was due diligence, second marketplace, third is monitoring and making transparent the um, achievements of a project. And so basically adding transparency and then d- discipline and transparency. Those are the words I love most when we're talking about SILTA. And that brings us back to your question about in light of situation of FTX, right? You had asked that before I went way off on my tangent. (laughs) Pardon. Had more due diligence been done on the underlying projects? Had there been more transparency of where the fund flows were and with FTX, would we be in the same situation that we are now? And I'd say that this is why SILTA is becoming, for us, why we believe SILTA will be an important tool for not only DeFi, but TradFi and and Regen as well. If we have an approach which is stable, disciplined, and transparent, we should be able to to offer up um, a clearer picture of what people are investing into. That's the goal. Make it clear. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, the life cycle is something like, I guess, in order to wrap my head around kind of the marketplace of actors, would are there going to be sort of like, I guess, what's the role of a project developer? You know, what's the role of an entrepreneur who's going out and saying like, okay, cool, I'm either looking for opportunity or I'm creating opportunities. How are they represented in the protocol and what's their relationship to the auditing? process the sort of like secondary due diligence so um let me give you um, a couple examples we have a project developer um based out of singapore who is uh who has built a mini grid to prove the concept in the philippines built and funded one mini grid project with a lot of success they now say, you know, we can do even better. We can achieve much more. And they're going for a full 16 mini grids that um, all at the same time. Well, when they go to traditional finance, traditional finance is a little bit like, oh my, that's that's fairly aggressive. And, and, and the kind of questions that have been presented to them have been you know, a little bit off base from what they're attempting to achieve. Um, that's the kind of investor that we're our kind of project developer we're very interested in. Someone who has a great idea, they've already shown they have a track record in the past, and now they want to go uh, they want to go further. 
and they have a very clear message on what they're going to achieve. They know how many families they're going to be able to support with this um, mini grid. It's a hybridized mini grid. So it's combining solar with, uh, of course, continued diesel generation, but they've been able to reduce the diesel generation by more than 60%. So they've been able to offset um, that much um, diesel generation and also created um, an easier system for um, families to pay for their power. So they've applied, they've developed an app and that the app uses um, very, what, what I would call um, appropriate FinTech. You know, we've always talked in ecology about appropriate technology. You don't necessarily have to put out the flashiest, best thing for um, achieving a, a, a rapid improvement of human life. If you do something that fits in a local environment, it, it is appropriate. And I think um, what we're seeing in countries like um, what I've seen in, in Myanmar and uh, Philippines is that smartphones are pretty ubiquitous now. Banking was not, but banking can now be done through fintech devices, I mean, through fintech apps. So they've connected their project to fintech so that people can monitor, know exactly how much power they're using, and top up the credits necessary to get that. So that's a great kind, in our, in our view, that's a developer with a great story. But it's also something that might be a little bit challenging for traditional banks to get their heads around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around is the amount of risk reward for project developers, right? So, and this may not be totally worked out yet, but I'm just curious, mm -hmm. you know, how you're seeing in the sort of context for my question is in um, carbon markets, biodiversity markets, nature-based climate solutions, which are a little bit different, but have some similarities to community microgrid installations or renewable, other renewable energy mm -hmm. um, projects. Similarly, like we have a similar set of challenges, right? That, that it tends to be much easier to bring to market a mega project than a micro project. And you know, you're you're really unlikely to get a micro project funded or even into the marketplace. Um, so it sounds very similar. Like it's just you're not going to get the numbers to match right. up. You're not going to get the, the the I's dotted and the T's crossed and the approval from the powers that be. And that certainly is also one of the things that we're really passionate about at Region Network is you know how do you sort of like ground all of this into more local action. Uh, which is where we think the bulk of climate action. It's just, you know, yeah, a giant centralized in institutional model is unlikely to be able to solve the problems that we have. You know, we need more right. independent, distributed <clears throat> initiative that's, that people are just rolling up their sleeves, getting to work. And at this stage of the game, though, like at this moment, I'm constantly thinking, you know, who's bearing the brunt of the risk? Right. And, and who's willing to bear the brunt of the risk up until now, I would say finance is being and maybe this is, you know, one of the answers for why DeFi and why Web3. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe there's a group of investors there that are more willing to take risk. I would argue that I'm seeing people take really stupid risks that I'm kind of upset mm -hmm. about. I wish they would take 
<laughs> I wish they would take re- dire- directional risks in a little bit different way, but that's a that's a different conversation. So maybe there's a group of financiers or you know investors who are willing to take a higher degree of risk, but also both, I guess you could say the communities and the project developers are undertaking a fairly significant amount of risk in different ways, especially the project developers. I would I would yeah. say is my experience because they're yeah. sort of like they have a vision. They have a vision, but they got to sell it to both the community and they've got to sell it to the marketplace and they've got to make it through the due diligence process. And they kind of have to like mm-hmm. conjure this up out of nothing <laughs> in a way where right. they, they see they're, it's like a classic entrepreneurial story. They see that there's they see that there's a demand for something that other people haven't yet noticed. And so they're jumping in and trying to sort of build that. I'm just curious, how does that risk? Is there a you know, have you designed a mechanism around that player in the marketplace? Or, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and so describe a little bit about okay. the relationship between that risk that a project developer is taking and kind of like the, the due diligence and sort of ongoing reporting process that Silta is creating. Okay, great. I like the way you, 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 you identified that it's the project developer who's really taking the brunt of the risk most of the risk because the the project the project developers who will get through the scoring process of silta are the ones that have mapped out their project have lined up their licenses have a management team that's capable of delivering on the project um, so we we are looking at so many different risk factors uh, it starts where, okay, what's the country? What's the country risk? What's the currency risk? Those are factors that go into our scoring. Um, does this developer have a track record? If this is someone who just has a feel-good desire to go out and do something that they have no track record in developing or even a similar track record, they will score lower. They must score low. We have to be very dispassionate when we start scoring that. Uh, whether or not we believe in their vision is is a completely different issue. But we are looking at projects. Um, we like to say the projects are pretty much shovel ready, meaning that the developer has done all of the legwork. They've gone out. They've got their um, their project uh, feasibility study done. They've lined up their suppliers to help build out their contracts. For construction, they have the licenses to do the project. They've uh, convinced the local community. Where, where they are now is they are struggling to get finance. Those are the that's the borrower profile who comes to us. They do a two step process. Step one, they share the the basic details of the project as a pre application, and they get pre qualified. The pre qualification phase asks a number of questions and. What we're doing there is we're doing, um, I hate to say it, but we're doing a scratch and sniff. Does this thing smell legitimate? Is this project um, developer a company or person or team who we can verify their identity? We do a KYC on them. We'll go through a KYC AML. Um, Then we are looking at is their project realistic? I mean, just by the expert panel that we presented to, 
have, I mean, if it's a project with a technology that no one's ever heard about before, that might be a red flag. If it's a technology that is, is new, that's not a red flag. It's just the technology that needs to be further developed. So we're looking at it for, that's the fir- very first level. After they make it, and we just had a couple developers go right through, um, small-scale developers have gone through and they've got their PQ, their pre-qualification. The next step for them is to go into um, to agree with us to allow us to conduct the full due diligence, the full assessment. And right now, um, we are we've been we've designed the system for it and we're testing it. And we're going to be testing it for several projects, getting it better and better and better. But that system is, as I mentioned earlier, looking at over 280 data points related to a project, applying a score, and it will then generate a scorecard on the project and also a qualitative due diligence report that those who are serious bona fide lenders, bona fide financing parties who um, will, will be given access to it with, of course, the the project owners, the borrower's consent. And then they will have to make a decision if they wish to invest. But one way to look at SILT is we don't represent the borrower side and we don't represent the lender side. We try to be a very stable, uh, neutral clearinghouse. But within our role, by by undertaking this due diligence exercise, and identifying the risks and, and identifying where risks are mitigated and which risks are not mitigated, what we've done is we've helped the borrower borrower become investment ready. And if they do have unmitigated risks that lower a score, what can a borrower do? They can go out and find mitigation for that. They can solve it and go out, you know, try to apply to again to resolve those issues. Or they can talk very frankly with the lender. So um, in a traditional financing, uh, like a big project financing that we, we do out here in Asia, um, we we will get, uh, we lawyers and the technical advisors write these enormous due diligence reports. We identify all the unmitigated risks. And then what the lenders do with that is the lenders say, okay, we have a series of conditions before we you're allowed to draw down the loan. You have to fix this, fix that, fix the other. After you take your first loan, you have to make these covenants. Yes, you know, positive and negative covenants. You will not do this, you will do that, and it has to be on time. Or if a project, if a problem is unmitigated at the time of financial close, but can be mitigated within six months then after financial close, you must have achieved this by this date or you're in default to your loan. That's how they normally do it. What I believe will happen with uh, the SILTA scoring is when we identify and make transparent the unmitigated risks of a project, the lender or investor will be able to make a call and deal directly with the borrower. Hey, are you able to fix this or not? Am I willing to accept the risk? And now let's come back to the, the a point you made. Maybe within our community, there are investors who see additional values other than a typical rate of return. Perhaps the environmental return is just as important to them as an economic return. 
And, you know, I've read some interesting comparisons to impact investing versus region, where impact investing has been described as traditional financing with impact bolted on versus region where impact is a main driver and then the rate of return is the bolt on. So it's a little bit different. If, if, if you're a region, maybe you can answer to me from a region investor's perspective, what is the most valuable element of that project? What would you say, Gregory? It's a, it's a good question. I think I would maybe amend that characterization of the, the bolt on in that I think what we're aiming for is to completely align. And this does not exist in today's market. So that rate of return and ecological impact are synonymous. Yes. Right. So, so the, mm. so, so the metrics that are responsible for rate of return are the ecological regeneration outcomes. So the, the emphasis in due diligence is going to be in, in our construct is going to be centered on you know, risks or um, the likelihood of success of that, of those specific ecological outcomes, um, which I think is, I think is significantly different than, you know, so, so you're going to have a different set of um, risks and liabilities than you would mm -hmm. in operating a business for sort of like, um, um, and financial success in a paradigm in which financial success is allowed to exist by externalizing as much possible <laughs> yeah, sort of costs it. out into the system. So competitive, you know, being competitive in that kind of a market system is, I think, going to be a little bit different. And, and you know, and it may be that at the beginning, you know, the shorthand version of this is, yeah, you know, the investor biases is the environmental outcome happening, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is the forest being preserved or not? And what are the risks around that? Um, is the, are the changes in land use, uh, you know, sort of like agricultural land use happening or not? And what are the risks and how, how are the those risk mitigation like what is the risk mitigation and i think you know there may be people yeah i i i also think there's a degree of how much is an investor willing what like what kind of risk are investors willing to take and you know it, then my curiosity is how does that affect the quality of the of the collateral right so so mm -hmm. even if an investor is willing to take the risk so if I'm like, hey, I just want to see this done. And and yes, I see all these red flags, but I'm willing to do it anyway. Does that, you know, how how does Silta pass the that risk on in terms of how valuable that collateral is to then be putting into a lending protocol like Ave or something or or Maker? Sure. Um what what we do is we're we are providing a an independent scoring of a project and then the actual loan facilities and the security meaning the collateral 
that needs to be worked out between the borrower and lenders. We're we're not touching the finances in this system. So we're you know we're we're one Lego brick within the overall scheme. We're trying to hold ourselves to that in our current model, um, rather than us reaching too deeply and start to provide intermediary services as a lender's intermediary services. However, one thing we are working on, we call it SILTA agent. And the SILTA agent, it would be um, a subsidiary of us, which can also help the parties bridge the whole collateral issue. So designing based on the due diligence due diligence can plug into a standardized loan agreement that identifies what risks are there and then what collateral or security needs to be taken so we borrow from traditional finance on that and this is something like i've looked at a number of the protocols i've looked at their they don't have typical loan agreements they tend to have subscription agreements you look at it, and I don't think those agreements in, in many cases are good for either party. It's unclear uh, from an investor perspective what happens if there is a default. And in what if we borrow from traditional finance, what we can do is the borrower can be entering a pretty rock-solid and clear loan agreement that any lender any investor can see what the terms of that loan agreement are. And within the loan agreement, there would be the assignment of a variety of collateral against the project itself. So assignment of shares, for example, is a very um, clear one. Um, mortgages on assets within the project. What this does, um, I know it sounds very legalistic um, and maybe too traditional, but it's a discipline that I think is needed. If, if you want to borrow, if borrowers gaining access to a few hundred thousand dollars to few mil, several millions of dollars liquidity to establish and operate a project, that borrower should be held to terms of a loan agreement that are clear for all parties and should be willing to issue collateral against the project possibly even do shareholder support agreements so that the borrower stays responsible. Now, I want to back up from a borrower's perspective, the kind of people that we've, the kind of projects we're looking at right now, these borrowers are deeply invested in their project. You know, we have a fair, you know, a pretty high level of confidence. They're not going to go take the cash and run. They're, they're doing these projects because they are trying to make a true impact. So that's, you know, that's why the due diligence is so important, because you can prevent default by identifying the projects that have the management team that are actually going to get the job done. That's just one element. If the project comes out of nowhere, I've actually seen this in Vietnam. I once, I once saw a concession agreement from the government of Vietnam uh, for a large thermal power plant. Um, but uh, this large thermal power plant concession was given over to a tennis shoe manufacturing company from a different country who had never been in power ever. 
and they won one of the largest contracts for the government of Vietnam. The project never got off the ground because they didn't have any, that's a big skill example, but it can apply anywhere. If you have absolutely no experience implementing a project that requires a certain amount of know-how and skill set, that is a big red flag. And that would probably get a very low score. Score And by getting weeded out, we now weeded out a project that was likely for default. So the thing is, let's prevent, let's, let's help the projects that deserve funding and that have the right skill set and the right team and all the fundamentals in place. Let's help get them bumped up to the top through proper scoring so that then both sides, the, the borrower and the investors, lenders can know what the project is going to do and, and its likelihood for success. Yeah, cool. One of the things that we talk a lot about in relationship to bringing natural, sort of to nature-based currencies and to bringing mm-hmm. yeah. um, life and the relational value of living systems into mm. an economic framework. Um, and I'll unpack that for a second. So this concept of the relational value of a primary forest, for instance, yep. is that the the value of of that forest is in the interconnection between all of the different species. Um, and this is, you know, as a side note, this is a different theory than like intrinsic value theory in which you just sure. sort of say, okay, the only value is it's just intrinsic and we don't even ever want to think about quantifying it or thinking about it. It's intrinsically priceless and therefore it's it's morally imperative to protect it. Instead, we're saying, mm, well, yes, that might be true. Not to say that that isn't true, but also we could create a social agreement about the relational value of all of these interconnections of you know, of, of the the health of this living system and the relationships between the bromeliads and the frogs and the trees. Yep. And, you know, uh, the only way that that forest, you know, remains intact is, is through its relationships. Okay. If we're going to bring that onto someone's balance sheet as a form of, of collateral or as a new asset that shows up in, on a central bank balance sheet or in a DeFi stablecoin sort of as a as a piece of collateral there's a couple mm-hmm. of things we absolutely don't want to have happen right we don't want the agreement between the counterparties to give the rights to liquidate the the relationship value yeah. in order to generate um you know lumber or something like that mm-hmm. right that's not that needs that that you know we sort of have to take all of that out um, and then create agreements between the counterparties in which it's understood that the entire premise of their agreement is that that is at all costs above all other things to be preserved. And that that's kind of the, that's where the value is even coming from in the first place is that, 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 that kind of like liquidation, that collateral liquidation mm-hmm. events is off the table for all of the counterparties, right? Because otherwise you'd have a situation in which there could be some, you know, like we just saw with, you know, FTX, there could be, 
some shady business that happens and then yeah. there's a bunch of capital calls that take place and then somebody's like oh i need to liquidate my collateral and you know the the bulldozers start rolling and you you know sort of get this i can see that point yeah sort of scenario and so mm-hmm. i guess my question to you is you know what is the appropriate way to secure that kind of collateral okay that's actually a beautiful question um I wanted to step back. Oh, I'm going to answer that in just a second, but I want to say that during our um, workshop a few weeks ago um, at Google Campus, um, I love the idea that people are now talking relation, relational value and co-benefits, um, ecological co-benefits, because this this is a discussion that needs to get bumped up. It needs these are words that need to become, or terminology that needs to become familiar to TradFi. Now, um, we have not dug as deeply into this as we want to yet. This is on our list of things like, how could we, Silta, really start to help people score a project for its co-benefits and um, and address that within a, um, a scheme that serves both sides? And immediately, as you were talking about the idea of lenders, who have taken collateral. So here we go. Let's say we have a, um, uh, forced service, a forestry project. It can be any, it can be any kind of forest project where there is a land use right underlying the whole, whole project. So the sponsor has acquired land use rights to a forest that we know has all of the, the, um, key ecosystem elements that we want to see fostered and protected over a long period of time. But they've now entered a land, uh, they've entered a loan with a, a lender where what's going to be the natural collateral? Well, typically you'd assign the land use rights, right? What would be very interesting, something, um, this is just off the top of my head, where we ought to be going with this is to have the lenders pre-qualify for this kind of access to for access to this project where the lenders agree to covenants as well not only the borrower having positive and and negative covenants promises under the contract but what if the lender were required to on a liquidation event on a default leading to a liquidation event there would be an assignment of the land use right to a conservancy to be agreed between various the parties or that there would be a committee appointed to identify so that the the land use right could not be assigned to a developer whose object is to raise the forest sell off lumber quickly so then what we need is we need partnerships out there. We need rock solid partnerships um, who um, have um, who have experience in stewardship of, of land who could receive um, and but also remain neutral, right? Neutrality needs to to be preserved, I think, by all parties. So that the lenders say, okay. What we do is, okay, there's one more very powerful tool, and that's called the step-in right. 
Lenders in a traditional project finance, we give lenders a step-in right if if the um, project goes into default. And what the step-in right does is it says, lenders, you may now nominate a new operator of that project to step in and operate the project under the same terms of the original concession. So this is something that can be applied in a, in a situation like this where um, we have a project and the original developer operator defaults. Lenders then say, okay, someone else is going to get appointed who should be able to close the project. Because as long as the lender isn't actually trying to steal the underlying project, but the lender's goal is to get repaid, then the lender has an interest, an aligned interest to see that the best party able to operate the project to its um, to its goals is the party to have in there. That makes sense. Yeah, that's all that's all super helpful in thinking about things. You know, it's an interesting the this like side shift or step forward from DeFi into refi or sort of regenerative finance and thinking through what are the yeah, what are the legal norms what are the agreement norms that actually make it possible to mm-hmm. um, to make that happen is something that i i think a lot about so yeah so if i'm kind of like the picture that i'm getting here is that silta is aiming to be sort of a cross chain neutral due diligence and rating agency to be able to mm-hmm. get in to support um, real-world assets coming into decentralized or regenerative finance applications. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And we we want to be the services that underline it and give legitimacy. So we ourselves need to operate in a rock-solid manner, and we need to be transparent. So it's sort of like a Moody's or something. It's like I a web-free Moody's. We, yeah, we try not to say that, but um, right now there's there's a big gap there. People are investing without any due diligence or without any discipline. And now we're in a situation that we see in the market for this whole year collapse, you know, um, algorithmic stable coins, okay, evaporated. And now we've got FTX. And if uh, there were some discipline, there's some transparency to know what the underlying project is and that project were scored, great. So yeah, we've heard the Moody's comparison a few times, but maybe that's it's close. But yeah, I, I just as an aside, <laughs> I sort of feel like it's sort of interesting, like how people tune their their radar uh, to shady shadiness, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I oftentimes find that it's not just DeFi investors; just investors generally seem to be drawn to the most shady projects and people it's like those are the magnets so i'm just thinking i'm just thinking and you know like okay so terra ftx we work what are some other examples just that there are charismatic aggressive founders who if you just looked i've just in this moment i'm just thinking we could probably design a just a twitter algorithm that would be able to, with a high degree of competence, point out <laughs> which founders are exhibiting the particular brand of sort of like 
sociopathic narcissism that is likely yeah. to lead to financial collapse. Um, yeah. Uh, disclaimer, I don't want to get, I don't, I'm not actually saying any of those people are sociopath, sociopathic narcissists, um, per se. I'm talking a hypothetical sociopathic Hypothetically, narcissist. like, I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think there's, there is, there is, it's like the writing is always there on the wall, on the Twitter wall. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we, but, how do it, and does Silta want to, if I design something like that, do you want to incorporate it into your due diligence process? <laughs> Uh, actually, yeah, it'd be very interesting, wouldn't it? It'd be very interesting if we just had an automatic score uh, applied to um, their web presence and the behavior on the web. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I, I just so. I feel like if you did a two year audit of you know like of Doquan and Sam Bankman Fried's mm -hmm. Twitter presence. I don't know how you do the control, but, you know, like, I think you'd find interesting things out that um, sure. could well, be a very uh, interesting piece of due diligence for investors. Yeah. And you said how, you know, it's always that we're always attracted. Well, you're the one who, who raised in early in the conversation. We are a herd animal and we we exhibit that herd or, or uh, primate tribe um you know primate group behavior because what whoever is the noisiest tends to get us to follow very quickly which is it's a shame yeah well but, it's, uh, it is a shame and it's and also for you know i've been scratching my head about this a lot but you know i think if we're going to have a you know, it put it puts projects like Region Network and Silta Finance in an interesting position because if you're going to succeed and be relevant, you have to make a certain amount of turbulence and noise. But on the other hand, the turbulence and noise is completely counterindicated to kind of this boring process of assuring quality and stability and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like at the end of the day, it's funny to say this, but it's sort of like the actuaries and the accountants are the are, are sort of like the yeah, revolutionary yeah. heroes of the of the regenerative revolution. It's like, is there really actually uh, something that took place there? And then therefore, how is it going to be responsibly accounted for <laughs> between these counterparties? Is this sort of like this really there's nothing that. Uh, like it's we're not talking about Zorro here in a mask. No, you're, you're talking about boring is exciting, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, but yeah. The, so the brand of that is a very interesting one to crack, just in terms of like how people, um, how to bring the right level of awareness, but to the right things, right? When you have sure. this sort of like hype chamber and these big <laughs> cycles you know, in the attention economy and everybody's sort of like dealing with fragmented Twitter brain. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting quandary we have to sort of like position and invite engagement and inquiry from the right audience in the right way in order to, to really succeed and not just be another sort of self-perpetuating bubble. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, is there anything else on your mind, Stanley, that you want to um, chat about while we have a little time? Well, I, I just want to say I really appreciate having a chance to chat. You know, our our building and um, our building relationships with the region network and 
meeting with folks like you and, and listening to the other ways to to start identifying value within our ecosystems is something that's going to have a very strong influence in the further development of CELTA. We're recognizing that, um, yeah, we might have a boring a boring Lego piece to fit oh, in. But it's so but important. It's, that's right? okay. <laughs> it's so important. But what's exciting is when we start taking a look at, um, you know, it's very easy to get hyped up about, oh, let's let's tokenize carbon credits. Let's tokenize environmental services or ecosystem services. We can we can tokenize these, but what's going to be very necessary is the story that underlies it and whether it's verified or not. Yeah. And that's exciting for us. It's like, yeah, actually there's a role for Silta within this. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, my mind is certainly churning about we've long wanted to have sort of independent third party auditors. So, I mean, there's a whole chain and region network around getting methodologies approved at the registry mm -hmm. level. Um, and but then we would like there to be the opportunity for third party audits of assets that are active in the marketplace or assets that are coming up for forward contract so that you mm -hmm. can just sort of like have a, you know, uh, sort of a metadata tag that, you know, and we call that curation where you have uh, an actor that is is curating and saying like, OK, you know, it passed this 11 point test or, you know, we gave it a three star rating or a five star rating or whatever it is. I mean, I think there's different ways to think about that, which then allows you know, a buyer or an investor to have more quickly be able to make decisions because they only need to they only need to audit and trust Silta, for instance, to then be able to engage and be like, okay, cool. You know, anything that Silta gave, you know, a, a full that passed the full eleven point checklist and got all, you know, I don't know if you're doing one out of a hundred score or a, you know, well, yeah, it's going to be, yeah. Uh, I see it. it. We're we're still as a team trying to decide how we're going to represent it that maximizes the understanding on the first view, on the first glance. Mm -hmm. Because you got so many points, you have many different scoring elements. So at first, I visualized it sort of like an old Star Trek um, health indicator in in the original Star Trek series. Up above the bed, you remember like those bars that bouncing up and down for different elements. But I think now I'm, we're actually looking at something that could actually look almost three-dimensional so that the, the project has these branches that are color-coded, number-coded. I cool. can't wait till we, we get that final product. I yeah, mean, that in makes my sense. Mind, so you, you get a shape. You get like a yeah, shape so you can just spatially, you know, people can just look at it and say, oh, it's deficient over there, but it's yeah. good over there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Right on. I look forward to it. Yeah, well, I'm super excited to collaborate more and to jam and see Excellent. see what it looks like to have Silta on Regen and um, collaborate cross chain as well, and see see what comes next. So, um, yeah, Stanley, thanks so much for taking some time today with us. On oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Yep, I really appreciate it, and look forward to our next chat. Awesome. All right. Cheers. Thank Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.